Well, let us continue in worship this morning by opening God's word to Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 18. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 18. Do you realize that uh, we were singing uh, a song just a few moments ago that would be impossible to sing apart from the gospel? For you are holy. It would be impossible for us to sing that song with joy, with certainty, apart from the Lord Jesus. To say, for you are holy, apart from the work of Christ would be terrifying. But because Jesus died and rose again, we can now sing with joy that God is holy and that we have been reconciled to him through Christ. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 18. Listen to the reading of God's word. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I want you to notice two central movements that are taking place in the book of Acts. On the one hand, the church is growing. God is blessing his people. So much so that Luke Luke is no longer providing us with numbers. Uh, It seems like they have lost count by now. There are too many disciples. We even see people joining the believers from outside of Jerusalem as we read in verse 16. Now, clearly the words of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, are unfolding before their very eyes. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, and sadly, we see the Jewish temple authorities also growing, but not in numbers, rather in their hatred toward the apostles. The hostilities are escalating very, very fast. Soon, in fact, prison will not be enough to satisfy their evil and their hatred against the apostles of Jesus. They will demand much more. But these two movements of blessing and hostility are not just happening at random, they're not random. It is all according to God's plan, a plan that was revealed to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, the center of which was this, I will multiply you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be what? Shall be blessed. God said those words to Abraham back in the book of Genesis chapter 12 verse 3. According to Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, 
This is the gospel. God preached the gospel to Abraham, which means, now don't lose the argument here, which means that the Abrahamic promise was in essence a promise of salvation for the nations. The words, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, mean, from you, Abraham, a Savior will come in whom my salvation will be known to the ends of the earth. And the Savior did come from the Jews. And now salvation is given to all who believe in that Savior, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Acts is showing us how this promise to Abraham began to unfold in history. And at the very center of it all is none other than the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And that's the central theme running through the book of Acts. The resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, who now possesses how much authority? All authority, where? In heaven and on earth. Thank you for participating. The Abrahamic promise that the Lord Jesus now, who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, he sends the Spirit into all the world so that the Abrahamic promise might reach the Gentiles, as Galatians chapter 3, verse 14 makes very, very clear. Okay, are we good? So far, so good? Okay. Now, in order for the Abrahamic blessing to go into all the nations, another transition must take place. And to this massive transition, we now turn. Look again at Acts chapter 5, verse 17. What happened with the religious leaders of Israel? But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with what? Jealousy. Now look at verse 33 of the same chapter. When they heard this, meaning the testimony of the apostles, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. You see? It's escalating. It's escalating. They want them death, dead. Clearly, the Jewish temple authorities, the Jewish temple authorities, not only rejected God's plan for the world in Christ, but they are now dominated by murderous jealousy. Why is that important? Well, Here's the main idea for today. Listen to this. The jealousy coming from the temple authorities is evidence that the Jewish religious system was coming to an end in order to give way to the global movement of the church. In other words, the people of God will not be confined to one specific ethnic group or to one specific location in Jerusalem. Rather, it will spread into every corner of the earth. Why? Because Jesus died and rose again, and now the king of God's people rules from heaven, and all the earth is his. Everything now belongs to the God-man. And by his spirit, he, Jesus, now calls people to himself from all over the world. Hence the words of Jesus to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, he said this, The hour is coming 
when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. This is going global. It's going global. Acts is the unfolding of those prophetic words from Jesus. In his book, The Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus, uh, theologian Alan Thompson, he gave the following insights that I wanted to share with you. What I'm saying is I don't want to take the credit for this. This is his, his thinking. He explains how Acts, in Acts chapter 3, 4, and 5, listen to this, the physical temple in Jerusalem begins to give way to what? Can anybody tell me? This is exciting. Yes, the spiritual temple of God. And not only that, the authorities of the temple begin to give way to the authority of the apostles. What an insight. Listen, so now the temple of God is the church which is built on the foundation of what? Who? The apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. Therefore, the Jewish leaders are now filled with jealousy. In our passage for today, we will see the selfish nature of their jealousy in verse 17, followed by the specific contents of their jealousy in verses 12 through 16, and we will finish with the violent expression of their jealousy in verse 18. Ready? Let's dive in. Let's see the selfish nature of their jealousy in verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him and filled with jealousy. Now, as we consider the jealousy experienced by the Jewish leaders, it is important to clarify that jealousy is not always bad. There is such thing as proper, holy jealousy. In the Bible, the word is sometimes translated as zeal. Like when Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple courts, it was zeal or jealousy for the purity of the temple that led Jesus to righteous anger. Paul said to the Corinthians, I feel a divine jealousy for you in 2 Corinthians 11.2. Moreover, the Bible says that God himself will judge sin with what? With jealousy. According to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 27, for those who persist on sinning deliberately, there is a fearful expectation of judgment and of fury, of fire that will consume the adversaries. The word fury is the word jealousy. Jealousy. As you can see, jealousy is not always bad. If God himself is said to be jealous, then obviously jealousy can be a holy thing. Unfortunately, what we see here in the temple authorities was not holy jealousy. Rather, it was the sinful kind because it was the kind of jealousy described by James in chapter 3, verse 16 of his letter, where he says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. The jealousy of the temple authorities was motivated by selfish ambition. They were zealous, that is true, but for themselves. They were zealous for themselves, 
Notice also that they were filled with jealousy, which means there was no room for true virtue. Their jealousy drove out everything else. Now, let me further confirm this by drawing your attention to the specific contents of their jealousy, which is our second main point. We now know where their jealousy came from. Now, let's find out what were the elements that caused this murderous jealousy. What we see here is similar to what we read back in chapter 3. You remember what happened there after healing the crippled man, the apostles were put in custody. And in his defense, Peter pointed out the obvious. What did he say? He said, we are being held in custody for a good deed. Likewise, the jealousy we see in verse 17 was promoted by the wonderful works of God that he was doing through the apostles in the church. In fact, if you read verses 12 through 16, you are left wondering, shouldn't the temple authorities be celebrating the goodness of God? Why are they jealous? This is wonderful what God is doing with these people. Why are they jealous? Well, there were five primary issues that elicited the indignation and the fury on the part of the temple authorities. And as we go through each one, you will notice that none of them are new. They had the exact same trouble with Jesus. Here's the first issue that evoked their jealousy. Apostolic authority. Apostolic authority. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, please. I know I have alluded to this verse already, but I thought important to read it in a bit more detail. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. This is in page 977 in the Blue Bibles, if that is what you're using. Notice how Paul describes the ministry of the apostles. Let's see if you can identify the key word. There's a key word. Here it is, Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Can you tell me what the key word is? You're probably thinking a lot of important words here, so I'm not going to take a chance, uh, publicly at least. Uh, foundation. Foundation. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles, meaning on their teachings. The apostles were men whom God used to establish the groundwork for the church. Therefore, the apostles had authority. What kind of authority? Well, the highest kind of authority. The authority to speak on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The apostles were trained by Jesus himself for three years. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus and were subsequently empowered by the Spirit to be the voice of God. This is what the word foundation refers to. And this is also why there are no more apostles today. There are no more apostles today. Their ministry was foundational, right? Foundational. And the foundation is laid how many times? 
once, not over and over and over again. Therefore, the apostolic age is over. The foundation has been laid. No more foundations are needed. Now, we, you and I, we are being built on that apostolic foundation. And as such, these apostles spoke with divine authority. So the Jewish leaders were jealous of this very unique group of men because authority is what they wanted for themselves. Now, I have addressed this in previous sermons, but it bears mentioning again the issue of authority lies at the very heart of the apologetic task of the church as we bring the gospel into the world. Remember that authority was the issue between the Jews and Jesus. The question by what authority was always central to their conflict. The same was true of the conflict between the Jews and the apostles, as we saw in Acts chapter 3, verse 7, in which the Jewish leaders asked Peter, by what power or by what name do you do this? And guess what? The same is true of the conflict between Christians and the world today. It is all about authority. Who has it? Where do we find authority? Well, we say Jesus does. Jesus has all authority. He has it all. But this is the central question in all of life. By what authority do we say what we say and live how we live? Who calls the shots in your life? Authority is always the issue when the serpent said to Eve, you will not surely die, go ahead and grab the fruit. She was leading Eve to think that God was not the one in authority and that she was her own authority. Authority is the issue. Have I said that enough? The apostles had a delegated authority granted to them by Christ himself, but it was authority nonetheless. And the Jewish leaders saw them as a threat precisely because they spoke with authority. And you may ask, why should I care? You should care for the following reason. That apostolic authority continues to be exercised today every time we open God's word and submit ourselves to it. So even though today the battle is manifested differently, the heart of the battle is the same. And the question still is, do the apostles of Jesus Christ have authority? In the middle of these voices that are seeking to speak to me, who do I listen to? The apostles spoke with authority on behalf of Christ Jesus, and they still do with the same authority. Do you realize that they're not around anymore, but they still speak with authority? The Jewish leaders chose to reject their authority. They were jealous of it. They were jealous of the authority given to God, by God, to the apostles. In light of that, here's a short word of caution to all of us. All of us, every single person in this room, including myself, let us be careful that we don't become jealous of apostolic authority. How in the world could we do that? Every time we think we know better than the scriptures. 
every time we seek to establish ourselves as our own authority. If the apostles, listen to this, if the apostles spoke with authority in this book, then sexual immorality of any kind is still a sin, no matter how I feel about it. It doesn't matter. Are they the authority or not? If the apostles spoke with authority, then repentance is still a moral duty for all men, no matter what the culture says. Some of you may have heard the term Christian deconstructionism. Very dangerous thing that is taking place today. As the term suggests, this is the process whereby a person literally begins to dismantle his or her own faith or those doctrines historically held by Christians in order to embrace a faith that is less demanding, less dogmatic, more welcoming, and more open-minded. Authority is the issue. Why? Listen, because in deconstructionism, the question is not... What did the prophets, Jesus, and the apostles say so that I may believe it and obey it? That is not the question. Rather, in deconstructionism, the question is, should I even listen to them anymore? Deconstructionism is allergic to dogmatism and authority. Therefore, it questions everything that issues a call for obedience. But I want you to take the following thought with you, take it home, and ponder it very carefully. If you reject apostolic authority in the New Testament, or if you reject the authority of the Bible in general, something or someone else will take its place. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you and I will submit to something or someone as Christians and for as long as you and I take that name for ourselves the authority over us will remain what God has spoken through the prophets and the apostles no matter what the world says moreover and since the apostles are the foundation listen to this what are we supposed to do on a foundation we construct upon it. We do not deconstruct. Don't tear your faith down. Rather, build your faith up by listening to and obeying the apostles. Now consider with me the next element in their jealousy against the apostles, miraculous power. Wouldn't you, have, wouldn't you like to have some miraculous power? Some of you are like, yeah, but I'm not going to say it out loud. The apostles have supernatural power to perform signs and wonders. And if you read these verses closely, you can find a twofold classification. The apostles had power to grant physical healing and also power to grant demonic deliverance. So the question is, why did they have this power? It is simple. Here's why. To confirm that their authority came from Jesus himself. This miraculous power was granted to them as evidence that the message the apostles preached concerning the resurrection of Christ was indeed true. 
that they were ambassadors of the one who has all authority over sickness and demons because he is Lord and he makes all things new. Now listen how Paul brings everything together in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, where he said, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Who were the ones who did all the signs and the wonders? The true apostles. The signs were reserved for the true apostles and were confined to the apostolic era, which is now closed. And this, once again, evoked the jealousy of the Jewish leaders. Remember their interactions with the Lord Jesus? How did they react to his power to heal and to deliver people from demons? How did they respond to that? They blasphemed the Holy Spirit. By attributing the power of God to Satan or Beelzebub. He does that by the power of Satan, they said. They blasphemed the Spirit because they were jealous. They wanted power. But their jealousy did not end there. You see, the miraculous power came also with another sign just as powerful as the miracles themselves. You want to know what that is? It's the next point in your notes. True holiness. True holiness. Notice the interesting statement in verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. They didn't want to join them. Interesting statement. We could say that this was God's holy jealousy for his people. How so? By bringing swift and severe judgment upon Ananias and Sapphira, God was protecting the holiness of the church. This, I think, reveals the identity of those who did not want to join them. Most likely, this is a reference to people who were on the fence about the Christian message. But in particular, I think these are people who, like Ananias and Sapphira, were not sincere. They had an interest in Christianity, but it was mostly superficial. More like curiosity rather than a true love for Christ. And as the news got around that a couple had dropped dead due to their own hypocrisy and greediness, they understood the message. What is the message? You don't play games with the Lord. He is a consuming fire. This reminded me of what a a very prominent pastor, I'm not going to tell you his name, what he said several years ago in an attempt to win people for Jesus, quote-unquote. He said, and I quote, give Jesus a 30-day trial. Try him for 30 days or your money back guaranteed, end quote. First of all, Jesus is not a product that you try for a few days to see if you like him and then you return him if you're not fully satisfied. You don't give Jesus a chance. You give him your life because he's Lord. Second, I don't think Ananias and Sapphira would agree with that silly invitation. I don't think the people who heard the news of their death and had great fear would agree. 
The severe judgment upon Ananias and Sapphira sent a clear message, which is the same message the Jews heard in the Old Testament over and over again, you shall be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. But this evoked the jealousy of the leaders of Israel. Why? Why? Because they were hypocrites. They were hypocrites. Like Ananias and Sapphira, much of the religiosity of the Jews had been infected with the gangrene of words without deeds. Hence, the damning words of Jesus against them when he said that they preach but do not practice. Let me paraphrase that. They only pretend to be holy. They only pretend to be holy. They wanted an external holiness accommodated to their traditions, not an internal holiness consistent with the truth. Therefore, what was happening in the church with those believers and the swift and severe judgment brought upon Ananias and Sapphira let the religious leaders know that God was truly among the people, the church, that this was not a movement of man, but of God. God was blessing them. This is very interesting for it reveals a very peculiar insight. Where's the insight? Well, yes, the miracles were amazing. But the real shock was the holiness within the church. The people desired true holiness of life. And that, my brothers and sisters, is always amazing. It is always amazing. It is an amazing thing when those who were once sinners walking in darkness are now saints walking in the light. Holiness was the reason none of the pretenders dared join them. The Jewish leaders were fake. Therefore, true holiness led them to jealousy because they didn't have it. They were fake. They were putting on a mask. They were pretending to be holy, but they didn't have it. And that's what hypocrisy does. Don't miss this point. Religious hypocrisy Religious hypocrisy makes you critical of true holiness. Religious hypocrisy makes you critical of true holiness. Religious hypocrisy can make you look on the call to holiness with contempt. And you hate it when you see other people walking in holiness because you don't have it. But this also creates a paradox, doesn't it? Which leads us to the next point. They were jealous of gospel progress. They were jealous of gospel progress. Consider verse 14. It's an interesting statement as well. And more than ever, believers were added. Multitudes. At this point, I would like to ask, what in the world is going on? This does not seem to fit, does it? There, here's where the paradox is. Okay, imagine yourself having a conversation with one of the young men who helped carry the lifeless bodies of Ananias and Sapphira and buried them. The next day you see him and you ask, so is, is your church growing any? To which he says, yes, in fact, new believers are being added every single day. Multitudes, in fact. 
And you say, wow, that's great, you, you say. We want to grow our church too. And we have considered adding a fog machine to attract more people. We're thinking about some strategies. Let me ask you, what methods for growth are you guys using in your church, if you don't mind me asking? To which he says, well, it is quite simple, actually. The apostles preach and teach. We pray together. People are healed. Demons are cast out. And when people lie, they die. It's going great. Do you want to join? Talk about counterintuitive. Talk about counterintuitive. And that's the story. Sin was severely judged. People died because they sinned. Great fear was upon everyone, and the gathering kept growing. And no fog machines anywhere to be found. How do we explain this? The only explanation for the growth of any church where truth is preached is the power of God. The church is a supernatural institution because it is created by God. But this is no surprise. Jesus said, I will build my church. Who builds the church? It's not men. It's not me. If, if I had that pressure on my shoulders, I would not be preaching the word of God right now. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So now it makes sense because Jesus, the one who spoke those words, has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, he can build his church through the simplicity of preaching, prayer, and witnessing. And he himself blesses his church with the power of transformed lives, which are a testimony to the fact that he rose from the dead. So... We may not see miracles anymore, but guess what? The power is still here. We may or may not see a person healed from illness, but we do see people being faithful in their illness to the glory of God. And that is the power of God. That's why Paul said, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is not our power. It is the power of God. Therefore, the true church doesn't grow upon the shoulders of entertainment or cheap advice on how to improve your life or become a better you. Only God in Christ and by the Spirit can build the church. Only sinners, listen to this, only sinners transformed by grace can see Jesus as a worthy Lord, the Bible as a living book, and holiness as a lovely pursuit. It takes the power of God to be a Christian. It takes the power of God to be a Christian. I remember John MacArthur sharing a story several years ago related to the massive growth they experienced at their church many years ago. They were growing so much and so fast that it caught the attention of a quote-unquote church growth expert, whatever that means, who was a faculty member at a seminary in California. MacArthur said that one day this man showed up at their church with a group of students to ask one question, one simple question, what's your secret? How are you guys doing it? Why are you growing so much? MacArthur said that his answer was truly disappointing to the so-called 
church growth expert because he said there were no secrets. There are no secrets. We just preach the word boldly. We seek to apply it faithfully. And God brings the growth. There were no tricks. The only attraction, the only attraction was the truth plainly taught and faithfully applied. God gave the increase. And that's my prayer for our church. That if we grow at whatever rate, whether we become massively big, that everyone will be able to see and think this can only happen because God is in their midst. And finally, they were jealous of Christ's lordship. They were jealous of Christ's lordship. There's a brief but all-important statement. The believers were added to the church? No, it doesn't say that. More than ever, verse 14, believers were added to the Lord. To the Lord. Undoubtedly, the apostolic ministry did not have authority, power, holiness, and progress for its own sake. Rather, it was all for the glory of Christ. And this is just another way of saying what the Bible says in several other places, namely that the church is nothing less than the body of Christ. And here, herein lies the ultimate and greatest blessing of our salvation, union with the Lord. Union with the Lord. We are one with Jesus. Jesus is at the center of it all. What an important lesson we learn here, brothers and sisters. Christianity is not about your best life now. Christianity is not about your best life now. It is about knowing God in Christ and by the Spirit. And this is the goal of the Christian ministry and life, that we make much of Jesus and less of ourselves. The Christian life is about understanding that we are in union with Christ, not with our sin. Since we were added to the Lord, that means your sins have been dealt with, forgiven. You and I have been washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But this does not, did not sit well with the Jewish leaders. Why? Because as far as they were concerned, Jesus had been put to death and he had been buried they knew his body had left the tomb, but they were in denial. During the ministry of Jesus on earth, they did everything they could to silence him. They even killed him. Now that Jesus is alive and ruling as Lord, they still hated him. But since they could not touch him anymore, they targeted those speaking on his behalf. They were jealous of Jesus. Now they are jealous of his apostles. Which leads us to the final point, the violent expression of their jealousy. Verse 18 they filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. How did their jealousy express itself? Two ways. Silencing, they arrested the apostles. And shaming, they put them in public prison. Jealousy will often express itself against the truth and against righteousness through silencing and shaming. This is what the Jewish leaders did First, they found a way to stop the spread of the message through arrest. Second, they found a way to shame the apostles by doing it publicly. Over 2,000 years later, the strategy has not changed. Over 2,000 years later, the strategy has not changed. 
sinners who fiercely opposed the truth of the gospel and its spread will do everything to silence and shame those who spread the truth and live by it. By the way, let me make an important point here that I hope you won't forget. This is what truth does. This is what truth does. It shakes things up. You can't, you cannot expect to speak truth and live by it without rocking the boat. Since you and I are the salt of the earth, as the apostles were, then know for certain that at some point you and I will cause a sting. And when that happens, people react. This is precisely what we see in the lives of the apostles and the first Christians. They lived as salt in a world of decay, and they lived as light in a world of darkness. Therefore, the world around them reacted and did so violently. violently. It was inevitable. If you and I live as salt and light, speaking the truth and seeking to live by it, then we should expect a reaction as well. The world will react. It will be inevitable. So here's a short application. What do we gain from this? Here it is. You and I are called to live in such a way that the supernatural work and power of the Spirit of God in us and through us becomes progressively undeniable to the world around us. You and I are called to live in such a way that the spiritual work and power of the Spirit of God in us and through us becomes progressively undeniable to the world around us. Christians, we are not called to isolate ourselves from the world, but to live in the world for the glory of Christ and guided by the truth of his word. So even though we don't have apostles walking around and miracles and signs taking place today as in those days, we still have the power of God visibly manifested in the lives of those who are redeemed from sin by the Lord. Moreover, the present hostilities being manifested against the truth of the gospel of Jesus and the church of Christ are not meant to lead us into retreat, but into greater boldness. Jesus lives forevermore. What can the world do to us? Our Savior lives. So I want to leave you with the words of Psalm 56. Psalm 56 Verse 9, after being captured by the Philistines and seeing the depravity of his enemies along with their threats and their intimidations, David confidently said to himself, this I know, that God is for me. Brothers and sisters, not only do we know that God is for us, Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can even say that we are one with him. God is for us because in Christ we are one with him. And then David said this, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do 
to me. The apostles shared in this confidence. So I leave you with this. Jesus is on the throne, high and lifted up at the right hand of the Father. His truth endures forever. Therefore, let us be encouraged. Let us walk in the light. Let us forsake our sin. Let us honor the truth. And let us not be afraid of the world. God is for us. In Christ, God is with us. And by the Spirit, God is working through us. We have nothing to fear. Let us pray to the Lord. Father, we thank you for reminding us once again that just like the apostles who endured persecution, trials, and sufferings, and the wrath of the world, we have nothing to fear. What can man do to us? What can the world do to us? There's nothing that can separate us from you. And moreover, we know that you are on your throne and that death cannot touch you anymore. So Lord Jesus, empower your church. Give us boldness and a love for your truth. Give us the boldness to stand against the world by speaking the truth in love. And may all things be done to the glory of your Son, the exalted one who reigns both now and forever, Jesus Christ. Amen.